Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 50, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, conclusion. Okay, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, please. Everybody. And I want you to look at verses 9 through 14 as I speak to you. I'll give you a second to get there. It's, it's here in chapter 21 that we find a physical, if you would, description of the new Jerusalem that has descended from heaven onto the new earth. And before we get involved with that description, I want to remind you about where we left off last time when I said that the final chapters of Ezekiel are not describing the new Jerusalem, but rather they are describing the Jerusalem of the current earth where Christ will reign for a thousand years. It's an era that we call the millennium or the millennial kingdom. Now, dealing with these final two chapters of, of Revelation is both a delight and it's a mind-bending puzzle. Yet the Lord told us something quite emphatic through John to begin this amazing book of Revelation that we need to hold on to as we consider its words. Back in Revelation 1.1, it begins, This is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah, so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated it by sending his angel to his servant Yochanan, John, who bore the witness who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as much as he saw. Blessed are the reader and the hearers of the words of this prophecy. Provided <laughs> they obey the things written in it. For the time is near. Blessed are the readers and hearers of the words of this prophecy. See, it goes without saying that the readers and the hearers must take an intellectually honest approach to reading and hearing the words of this prophecy. Otherwise, that which is intended to impart God's truth can just be turned into gibberish. And despite the rising mantra within the secular world, even in some parts of the church, that faith in anything is a good faith, God's blessing only ever comes from believing what's true and holy. Not from believing that which sounds good, but isn't. So it behooves us to make our best efforts to untangle this book of Revelation using all the tools at our disposal and constructing our understanding of it from the bottom up and not from the top down. To construct an understanding from the top down 
means to begin with a doctrine and then to reshape the words of John's apocalypse to validate that doctrine. My hope is to avoid that. Now, I've mentioned several times that during the stages of our study of Revelation over the past year, that the, the deep mysteries of this prophecy only come to light as we pass through various phases of human history. When the prophesied events and the, the circumstances of John's book happen, or at least conditions in the world that in earlier times made imagining how these events and circumstances were even possible, they've emerged. Each passing century then allows something more to be gleaned from this awesome book. Perhaps no other event in human history since John wrote his apocalypse has so dramatically reshaped the world has opened the door for many of the unimaginable uh, imaginable phenomena that are predicted than the return of Israel as a Jewish state. So the other thing we must always factor in when studying Revelation is how the Old Testament prophets and their books are front and center throughout. Because you see, it's their divine oracles that provide the context for understanding John's visions. Now, I begin today's lesson by telling you these things. Because when we finally complete our study in a few weeks, a couple more weeks, we will not have been able to decipher everything or answer every question. This is because more human history must yet unfold before we can. Even so, there are things we can know provided we do not approach this book taking that top-down approach. This is also why I've discussed with you the important differences between the two most popular but opposing theological worldviews of Revelation, one called premillennialism, the other called amillennialism. Premillennialism takes the worldview that wherever rational and possible, the book should be taken in its most plain and literal sense. The amillennialist worldview is that Revelation is purely symbolic, start to finish, and therefore it must be taken and taught allegorically. My view is that not only should we take this book the way the earliest church fathers did, which was a pre-millennial position, but we must also do our best to apprehend the meaning as the writer of Revelation intended it to mean. And the Jewish John had a very definite message he intended for his readers. And it came from a Jewish cultural mindset that revered and believed the ancient Hebrew prophets 
who foretold of the end of the world and even what comes thereafter. So when we follow that path, it allows us to establish some broad but major mile markers that pour rather spontaneously out of the text, which then serves to enlighten what has much too often become needless confusion about the end times. So in light of Revelation chapter 1, speaking of the new Jerusalem appearing on a new earth, I want to set a few mile markers for you as a framework to better grasp what lies ahead for humanity. The first mile marker is that at the end of the battle of Armageddon, the millennial reign of Christ begins. Also called the millennial kingdom, this 1,000 year era takes place on the present earth as we know it. We find that elaborate story in Revelation chapter 19. The second mile marker is that because of this Armageddon conflict, Jerusalem will have been mostly destroyed. So a rebuilt Jerusalem will become the city from which Yeshua rules over the world's governments. The rebuilt city will have some substantial geographic differences to it in contrast with the current Jerusalem because the Mount of Olives is going to be split into two halves, moved apart, and water is going to be flowing through the gap. Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations. Fighting is on a day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from the east to the west to make a huge valley. And half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half move towards the south. Zechariah 14.8 And on that day, fresh water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea, half towards the western sea, summer and winter. This rebuilt Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom is not the new Jerusalem descending from heaven that we see in Revelation chapter 21. However, it is the Jerusalem that Ezekiel describes in the final eight chapters of his book of prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 40, starting in verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, this is when they were exiled up into Babylon, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, this was the 14th year after the city of Jerusalem was struck. It was on that very day that the hand of Adonai was on me and he took me there. In visions, God brought me into the land of Israel and put me down on a very high mountain. And on it, towards the south, it seemed that a city was being built. That is where he took me. And there in front of me was a man whose appearance was like bronze. And he had a flax cord and a measuring rod in his hand. And he stood in the gateway. 
And the man said to me, Human being, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, pay attention to all the things I'm showing you. Because the reason you were brought here is so that I could show them to you. Tell everything you see to the house of Israel. A third mile marker. The millennial Jerusalem will have a glorious, literal, fully operational temple as also described in the book of Ezekiel, complete with a priesthood of Levites. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 41 starting in verse 1. He brought me to the sanctuary and measured at ten and a half feet the thickness of the walls on either side of its entrance, which was also the thickness of the walls surrounding the tent, that is the sanctuary, together with the especially holy place. Moving on to Ezekiel 43, 18-21. And he said to me, human being, Adonai Elohim says, these are the regulations for the altar when the time comes to construct it. To offer burnt offerings on it and splash the blood against it. You are to give it to the Kohanim, the priests, who are Levites descended from Sadok and who approach to serve me, says Adonai Elohim. You are to offer a young bull as a sin offering. You are to take its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the molding all the way around it. This is how you will purify it and make atonement for it. You are also to take the bull, which is the sin offering, and have it burned up at the designated place on the grounds of the house outside the sanctuary. There it is. The fourth mile marker. It is at the end of this thousand years that Satan will be released from his captivity in the abyss. He will lead a worldwide rebellion against Christ. But, just as with Sodom and Gomorrah, God will miraculously send down fire from heaven and the rebellion will be immediately put down and all the rebels destroyed. At the same time, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and remain captive there for all eternity. This is covered in Revelation chapter 20. The fifth mile marker, after destroying all the evil rulers and principalities that exist, Christ hands the rulership of the earth that he has held for a thousand years back over to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 25. But the fact is that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive, but each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. Then, the culmination, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The sixth mile mark. Now, after all this, 
God dissembles the earth and the entire universe back to its elemental level. And he remakes it into a new creation. Revelation chapter 21.1 The seventh mile mark, the new Jerusalem descends from heaven onto a new earth. And as Revelation 21.22 says, this new Jerusalem is going to be missing something that all prior iterations of Jerusalem have had. It will have no temple. Now I mention this because perhaps the most popular position taken in modern times anyway among Bible scholars, interestingly even among some premillennialists is that the temple that Ezekiel describes will be the temple that exists within the new Jerusalem on the new earth. But John plainly says the new Jerusalem will have no temple. Both things cannot be true at the same time. So when we conflate Ezekiel's temple with the new Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21, things can get kind of confusing and out of sequence. But we don't have to do that. Because as I've demonstrated to you, Holy Scripture, when taken honestly, plainly, as handed down to us, it gives us a much clearer picture. It's only the humans have muddied the waters with our man-made traditions and doctrines. Okay, let's reread a portion of Revelation chapter 21 together. We're going to start at verse 15. Verse 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, you're going to find that on page uh, 1554. The angel speaking with me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. Now the city is laid out in a square, its length equal to its width, and with his rod he measured the city at 1,500 miles with width, length, and height the same. He measured its wall at 216 feet by human standards of measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of diamond, the city of pure gold resembling pure glass, and the foundations of the city wall were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. And the first foundation stone was diamond, the second sapphire, the the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh turquoise and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, with each gate made out of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city. For Adonai, God of heaven's army, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God Shekinah gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. 
and the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now as we try to make some sense of what we've just read, I want you to keep in mind that the nature of the new earth and the new universe is very different from the earth and the universe we exist in today. So we have a real challenge of setting aside our commonly held notions of how the earth and the cosmos operates because that is not how the new earth and cosmos operates. This section of scripture is describing what we could loosely call the eternal era. That is, we find the earth and universe have transformed into their forever state. Now we are given some hints, even some direct statements about what this recreation is going to be like. However, the only means that John has to communicate these details to us is by using the terms of the physical world he lived in in the late first century. I mean, to emphasize the importance that we as his readers grasp that the new earth and heavens aren't like the old. Verse 17 says, He measured the wall at 216 feet. How? By human standards of measurement. Now, like some of you, I am a science fiction fan. I have been since I was a child. What I especially enjoy is the attempt by the sci-fi novel writers to draw word pictures of alien worlds and other dimensions and advanced technologies that do not exist. Yet, these writers have nothing more to illustrate and communicate their creations than our common human experiences. Our vocabulary. The physical, tangible, everyday things we're all familiar with. Modern sci-fi films, well, they can take this a step farther with this amazing high-tech computer animations that they employ that makes these man-made images seem real. And they can stir our imaginations in ways that words on a page can't. One of my favorite sci-fi films is one called Interstellar. Because near the end of it, an astronaut is dragged into a black hole and it takes him into another dimension. And inside this dimension, gravity and light are controlled by an advanced, by advanced but unknown beings in ways that to us seem impossible if not just beyond our ability to even comprehend it. And using fabulous computer animations, the film's creators came up with a fascinating model of what this other dimension might look like if our eyes are even able to see such a thing. In other words, 
The writers and animators created a world that doesn't exist. In a dimension, it might exist, but it's unknown to humans. But still, they were confined to using human standards of measurement, as well as human standards of communicating concepts that are anything but human or standard. This challenge is quite similar to what John faced. As he attempts to convert the futuristic things that he sees in the spirit and his divine visions into mere pen and ink, using only what he had available, the ancient terms and illustrations that the readers of his day could grasp. So when it comes to trying to describe the realities presented to us in chapters 21 and 22 about the new earth and new heavens, I dislike using words like figurative or symbolic or even physical or literal or spiritual as we try to make sense of what is before us even though I really have a little other choice but to use some of those words. See, this is because as we read John's words, the physical seems to have taken on characteristics of the spiritual. And the heavenly seems to have acquired some kind of earthly nature to it. The dynamics of this new earth and universe that God will create are dramatically and fundamentally different. They're at odds with all we know all we can observe such that the vocabulary just doesn't exist to accurately portray it. It's almost as though heaven and earth have melded together in a single entity. So let's see what we can reasonably glean from these extraordinary verses. First of all, the size and the shape of the New Jerusalem is clearly important because an angel comes with an instruction that John is to measure the city. In the Bible, to measure something means to ascertain the truth. So to measure a person, for example, is to determine the truth of who that person really is. John is measuring the New Jerusalem so that the truth of its underlying nature can be established. And yet, the city does have definite dimensions. On the other hand, as I'm going to show you soon, the typical English translations of these measurements of the city tends to mask some hidden meaning. The first thing to notice is the enormity of the city. 1,500 miles is the usual translation. But the second thing to notice is, is that while the words say the city is laid out in a square, in fact it is dimensionally a cube. Because we're told that the length, width, and height are all the same measurement. Is there significance in the fact 
that New Jerusalem is a cube? I believe there is. Solomon's temple built the Holy of Holies as a cube with 20 cubits being its length, width, and height. In Solomon's temple, the back room of the inner sanctuary acted as a barrier so that when God was present, mankind could not come near and defile him. The Holy of Holies was accessed by man only once per year, and that by the high priest. Even then, the high priest's task was mainly to ritually cleanse the Holy of Holies from defilement because although protected by those thick walls, the interior of that chamber could not 100% escape uncleanness. Even in the cleansing of the Holy of Holies, no matter how ritually clean the high priest was, he could not wash away the iniquity that was housed inside his own body because it sprang from Adam. So perfect cleanliness of the Holy of Holies on earth was utterly impossible. It seems that the new Jerusalem was built in heaven and in the shape of a cube to reflect the characteristics of the Holy of Holies. And the concept is that all of New Jerusalem is as holy and undefiled by sin as was the Holy of Holies. But even more important is that the lack of a temple in the New Jerusalem indicates all barriers between God and man have been removed. Redeemed and recreated man living on a redeemed and recreated earth we are as free from sin and uncleanness as the angels even more since the evil one and sin itself have been done away with now there is no possibility for mankind to sin and do evil thus bringing on uncleanness So just as God was safe in heaven from having his holiness defiled because of the barrier of being not only apart from planet earth but also of existing in another dimension the spiritual dimension so upon the new earth God will also be safe from defilement such that it reminds us of when he and Adam and Eve walked together among the Garden of Eden with no barriers. Genesis 3, 8-10 They heard the voice of Adonai God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai God among the trees in the garden. And Adonai God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, Well, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. The measurements of the city 
are informative when taken in their original language terms. See, naturally, since this book was written in Greek and in the Roman in a Roman world, the measurements are actually given to us in those same terms. See, the Greek measurements are that the size of the city was 12,000 stadia. Notice the symbolic use of the number 12. 12,000 stadia, 12 gates named for the 12 tribes, 12 foundation stones named for the 12 apostles. The height of the wall in Greek terms is 144 cubits. 12 times 12. So the measurements, the dimensions of the city itself, although it is real and not merely a figurative city, are meant to symbolize and memorialize the representative number attached to God's people, Israel, and that number is always 12. Always. Next, there are some descriptions of the materials used to construct the city. They are the richest, most valuable items in use at the time of John. Materials like gold and diamond mesmerized people with their dazzling shininess. So the idea is to show that the new Jerusalem is staggering in its glory and splendor, nothing like it has ever existed. The mention of each city gate made from a single pearl is to emphasize their extreme value. See, in the first century, pearls were as valuable as gold. Large pearls were more valuable than gold by weight. The twelve foundation stones are described. Each is a precious gem. And even though we've been told that the city's twelve foundation stones are named for the twelve disciples, another connection that can't be more obvious is to the high priest's breastplate that was organized in a square and had on it twelve gemstones each one representing one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now verse 22 verse 22 is just a stunner. It is here that we learn that there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because according to the last half of the verse it's because God is the temple. But how can God be the temple? I would argue that this is a figure of speech because otherwise I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Let's understand what a temple is. It's the place where a god is housed. In ancient cultures, in some cases, it was a way to keep that god contained, available to you like a genie in a bottle. In other cases, it was a way of protecting that god from being stolen from you or from another god coming in to take his power or place. 
A temple, therefore, was designed as a God's residence. And since the God lived there, it was also the place where God's priests performed their ritual service to the God and where special worship of that God took place. So I think that the intent of saying that God is the temple is to say he no longer needs protecting nor, in perhaps just as important a sense, do his worshippers need to be protected from his presence. Nor is worship of him confined to one place, one building, actually, on the entire planet. Further, the lack of a temple precludes the need for a formal priesthood. See, we have to remember that the rules for ritual and behavior of the priests, everything that's to go on at the temple is contained where? In the Torah. But as of the new earth, the Torah is abolished. And generally speaking, all those rules of behavior and ritual along with it. So whatever amounts to worshiping God and making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the eternal era, it's, it's going to be a little different than in the millennial kingdom era, era and all earlier times since the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. Verse 23 now starts to really get interesting. Here we're told that there's going to be no need for a sun or the moon to shine on it it being the city. Because God's glory is going to be its light and its lamp will be the Lamb. Further, that the nations will walk by that same light. But also all the kings of the earth are going to bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. Further along we're told that the city's gates will be permanently opened day and night because there will be no night. Now there's several implications to these statements that we need to consider. The first implication is that in the new universe, the new earth will no longer be lit by a sun or a moon. Now technically, the words say it is the city of Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, where this is the case. So could it be that the New Jerusalem will have entirely different parameters for governing its existence than the rest of planet Earth. Well, the wording of this verse is ambiguous. That said, New Jerusalem is the center of the biblical universe at this point. So possibly it's just a manner of speaking that what goes for the city is representative of how it is for the remainder of planet Earth. Now assuming that this means that it's the entire planet that will have no sun or moon to provide light, not just in Jerusalem, then this is a further indicator that the underlying governing dynamics of the Earth and the universe have changed. This will no longer be a universe of opposites. The existence of day does not mean night has to also be present. In fact, we're directly told in verse 25, nighttime will not exist. 
Further, verse 24 says that the nations will walk by this same light that illuminates New Jerusalem. So this brings up another interesting point. The new earth is still going to be divided up into nations. And the presence of kings says that these nations are going to have their own governments. However, the new Jerusalem will be the central point of the world's governments. Why will, those, why will there still be nations? What's the point? I think probably as much as anything for practical reasons. You know, even the angels have a hierarchy in heaven. And there are different groups of angels established for different purposes. Even though humans are going to exist in some kind of different glorious body that never dies, we will apparently retain the essence of what makes us human. Individuality. We will not look as though we all popped out of the same mold. There will be uniqueness among individuals. Angels certainly were not beings that shared one mind, don't have just one spiritual form, so it seems eternal humans won't either. There will be millions, maybe billions, of people on earth, and since God is a God of order, then for the human population to progress and thrive, orderliness in the form of government will be needed. So here's another question. See, I got more questions than answers. So why would everybody just live in New Jerusalem? Pretty big place. I don't know. I've seen it suggested that only ethnic Israelites will be permitted to live in Jerusalem. I find that unlikely. For no other reason, because the number of ethnic Israelite believers will be only a tiny fraction of the Gentiles, whose population outnumbers them probably 500 to 1 or more. I can tell you that many Bible commentators at this point just throw up their hands and say that all this talk of a new Jerusalem and nations outside of Jerusalem and kings and no sun and no moon and so on has to be taken figuratively and symbolic of something because none of what is being said can be taken seriously as literal. But figurative and symbolic of what? There's no consensus among Bible academics or anything approximating it because it's all just guesswork. Now while this is purely my own speculation, might it be that God will indeed allow some specially elect group to live in the new Jerusalem as a kind of eternal reward? And all others, still believers, still part of God's eternal kingdom, would be relegated to live outside of the city in what is called the nations. And if that is so, what might be the criteria? Now, interestingly, we do have 
a statement from Christ that eternal humans are going to be organized into groups of lesser and greater. In speaking of the obligation of obedience to God's commandments by his followers in this present life, as it affects our eternal life, Yeshua says this in Matthew 5.19, So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Food for thought. Well, the final verse of this chapter is another one that is is difficult to assess. It says that nothing impure may enter the city, nor may anyone who does shameful things or lies. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life may enter the New Jerusalem. Now, if we assume that these rules apply all during the eternal era, then I just don't see the relevance. According to everything we've read to this point, nobody in existence on the new earth can be there without first being written to the Lamb's Book of Life. Right? And that matter was decided back at the time of the great white throne judgment. And since death and evil have been done away with already, then it's impossible that there could exist on the new earth even one person who lies or does shameful things. So what can this final verse mean? Well, I think this verse ought to be its own separate separate paragraph. I think it starts a new thought. This remark is meant as a hard-hitting warning to John's listeners and readers that all of these wonderful, amazing things that John has learned about in his divine visions that will constitute eternal life in the recreated earth and heavens of the future are only available to those who currently during this present life on this present earth do not live shameful lives who are not liars however the sense of the meaning of shameful lives and liars is best looked at in the Greek if we're to understand their impact the Greek bedlugma more means a detestable and abominable thing something or someone exceptionally sinful and unclean before God the Greek pseudos more speaks of deceit just deceit in general than just telling a lie and no doubt this particular word was chosen because first deceit is the primary essence of evil and second Satan's overriding and underlying attribute is 
that he is the great deceiver. Neither the deceiver nor the blatant and unrepentant sinner will be in the Lamb's book of life. And therefore, he will never experience the glory and the perfection of the new earth, the new universe, and the new Jerusalem. We will begin the final chapter of Revelation next time.